Hey listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about some fun changes we've made to our Undeceptions Plus subscriptions this year. We've added a bit more for the Keeny Beanies. We've planned a few extra singles episodes just for Plus subscribers that we'll scatter across the year. We've already dropped one of them, so there's that waiting for you. We're also planning a few live podcast events in Australia and the US in the next year. And plus, subscribers get first option on tickets and they get a discount. You'll be the first to know. And we've added a new level of support. So if you're a diehard fan of the show, you might like to check that out. It'll get you all the existing benefits, plus a personalized message from me, which producer Kaylee tells me people actually want, and you'll get messages from the team and the opportunity to participate in a few Undeceptions recording sessions, like what's going on here right now. You'll literally be online with me and the team as I record my lines. It'll be embarrassing for me, but maybe some fun for the team and for you. As always, we are grateful for your support of the podcast. It's an expensive show to run, and we're always looking for ways to make it bigger and better. Your Undeceptions Plus subscription allows us to do just that. So head to undeceptions.com forward slash plus to become a subscriber today. Okay, on with the show. Deceptions podcast. Hi, if you're a regular listener to Undeceptions, you'll definitely know that I released a new book in 2021. I talked about it rather a lot. It's called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. Now, we're going to be back with season six in late February, but until then, I thought you might like this series of short readings from Bullies and Saints. It's kind of a cheat sheet for the book, for those who don't want to read the whole thing, and I can respect that. And by the way, you should go back and listen through our back catalogue of episodes. There are 60 full episodes to get your teeth into over January, including a double episode on the Crusades. Now, that's episode 41 and 42, which are particularly relevant for this excerpt today. I hope you enjoy. Bullies and Saints An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History, with John Dixon. Any pilgrim willing to go to the East, fight the Muslims and reclaim Jerusalem for the Lord would receive pardon for sins and the promise of salvation. Hi, I'm John Dixon, and welcome to this super series on my new book, Bullies and Saints. Bullies and Saints is a no-holds-barred look at the best and worst of church history, an honest examination which I hope will help people judge fairly the merits of the Christian faith. Each episode, I'll give you a free excerpt from the upcoming Bullies and Saints audiobook. In this edition, I'll be talking to you about the Crusades and introducing you to one of the most infamous crusaders ever, Peter the Hermit, a fire and brimstone Christian if ever there was one. In 
It's difficult to read the primary sources of the Crusades without being confronted by the strong religious motivations and aims expressed, the importance of defending co-religionists, upholding the honour of sacred sites, and bringing glory to Jesus Christ over the advancing paganism of Islam. Ramond of Aguirre, whom I quoted earlier, was actually a chaplain to the First Crusade. His specific role was to remind others of the spiritual mission inherent in these acts of violence. Speaking of the massacre in 1099, he declared, This day, I say, marks the justification of all Christianity, the humiliation of paganism and the renewal of our faith. This expression, the renewal of our faith, is important for understanding the Crusades. It chimes with the perspective of the instigator of the First Crusade, Pope Urban II. I have to be careful here because it's easy to offer simplistic accounts of these things on both sides of the equation. And it's true there is a huge backstory to the rise of holy war in Christianity in the centuries before Urban. More on that later. Yet it is clear the Pope had a spiritual mission in mind when he officially called for the First Crusade four years before that bloody breach of Jerusalem's walls. Whatever Pope Urban's political ambitions, whether to exert a unifying force over a fractious Europe or to join together Western and Eastern Christendom, it was his theology that undergirded his thinking. Urban longed to recover what he saw as the purity of the church of earliest times in matters of doctrine and morals. He believed the church needed a grand moment of repentance and unity if it was to experience the renewing grace of God. That moment presented itself to him when he received pleas for help from the faraway Byzantine Christian emperor Alexius I Comnenus, AD 1056 to 1118, whose kingdom lay on Islam's western front, basically what we call Turkey today. Ever since its origins in the 600s, Islam enjoyed a highly developed and successful practice of holy war. Muslim armies spread throughout the Middle East, Egypt, and on toward Europe. By the 1050s, Islamic forces had captured much of the old Byzantine Empire, and within a couple of decades, they were knocking on the door of Alexius's capital, Constantinople, now Istanbul. Alexius promptly sent envoys to the Pope, who lived in France in this period, not Rome, begging for assistance. Surely Western Christianity would not stand to see the last remaining outpost of Eastern Christianity swept away. Urban saw this as the moment he'd been waiting for, when the church could redeem itself by assisting a fellow Christian Greek Orthodox kingdom and winning back the holy sites of Jerusalem, which had been occupied by the unbelievers since the year 637. After a four-month preaching tour throughout France promoting his plan, Pope Urban officially called for the First Crusade in a sermon delivered outside the cathedral at Clermont in central France on 27 November 1095. 
The sermon itself is lost to us, but we have eyewitness accounts and also a few of Urban's own letters describing the project. The central theme was clear. With full papal blessing, this war was not sinful, but redemptive. Any pilgrim willing to go to the east, fight the Muslims and reclaim Jerusalem for the Lord would receive pardon for sins and the promise of salvation. Whoever for devotion alone, not to gain honour or money, goes to Jerusalem to liberate the church of God, he declared, can substitute this journey for all penance. Urban writes of how he, quote, imposed on them, the crusaders, the obligation to undertake such a military enterprise for the remission of all their sins. This is a remarkable new theology within Christianity. Salvation is found in fighting the infidel. Apparently, the crowd that first heard Urban's sermon at Clermont responded in unison, perhaps led by the Pope's assistants, Deus Lawalt, God wills it. Before Pope Urban's second preaching campaign of 1095 to 96, warfare had an ambiguous status in Christian teaching. It was sometimes viewed as a necessary evil in a fallen world, and sometimes, especially in the early centuries, it was wholly rejected as a contradiction of the gospel demand, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Luke 6, 27. I'll discuss the backstory to Christian sacred violence later. For now, it's worth noting that historians typically speak about five different crusades. This is, of course, a matter of convenience, an easy way to organise our thoughts on the subject. People in, say, the year 1203 did not talk about heading off to the Fourth Crusade. Uh, Still, it's sometimes helpful to make our thoughts about history neater than the history itself. Several armies of European volunteers, amounting to something like 100,000 men, heeded the call of Pope Urban II to assist the Christian Byzantine Emperor Alexius I against Muslim aggression. They hoped to protect Constantinople and win back Jerusalem for Christ. The campaign was a stunning success from the Crusaders' point of view. Even though only 10 to 15,000 men reached Jerusalem in 1099, they were able to recapture the holy city in a matter of weeks. Part of the First Crusade's spiritual force, if I can call it that, came from a charismatic monk known as Peter the Hermit. His dishevelled appearance obscured a keen talent for recruitment and the management of soldiers, as well as a fiery preaching style. It is unclear whether he was the Pope's appointee or just a successful independent zealot who supported the cause. He rallied up to 30,000 men from France and Germany, both peasants and some elites. He personally led them toward the Holy Land, across the Rhineland in central Germany, down the Danube River to the Balkans, across to Constantinople, and then on toward Jerusalem via Syria. His message was revivalist, explains Oxford's Christopher Tymon, peppered with visions and atrocity stories. 
Peter himself was the source of several atrocities. As he marched through the Rhineland, he and his men slaughtered Jewish communities, partly for their supposed responsibility for the death of Christ centuries earlier, and partly for their alleged complicity in recent Muslim attacks on Christian sites in Jerusalem. More perversely, it may also have just been fighting practice. Anti-Semitism had a long history in Christianity, going back at least as far as the 4th century, but it rarely took the form of Peter's full-scale pogroms in 1096. There were massacres and or forced conversions in Mainz, Cologne, Regensburg and Prague. The majority of armies organised by Pope Urban apparently did not participate in such violent persecutions of Jews. And curiously, various other Christian armies attacked and defeated some of Peter's men for their indiscriminate violence. But Peter remained a major figure in the First Crusade, even preaching a sermon, a pre-game pep talk, on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem on the eve of the sacking of the city. I have already described the massacre that occurred on 15 July 1099 outside the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Suffice it to say that few were spared. Jews were burned alive in their synagogues. Muslims were cut to pieces or tortured by fire. One Jewish witness to the events speaks of the horror, but notices by way of concession that at least the Crusaders did not rape the women as other invaders had done. I quote, We have not heard, thank God the exalted, that the cursed ones, known as the Ashkenaz Europeans, violated or raped women as others do. Talk about damning with faint praise. Following the victory of July 1099, the Crusader leaders established several little European kingdoms in the region. They are known collectively as the Outramer from the French beyond the sea. Most of the fighters went straight back home to Europe after the hostilities. They had little interest in living in the Holy Land. By the year 1100, just one year later, only about 300 knights were left in southern Palestine. The principal crusader ruler, Godfrey of Bouillon, stayed in Jerusalem and gave himself the title Defender of the Holy Sepulchre, a reference to the tomb or sepulchre of Jesus in Jerusalem. His successor, Baldwin I, went a bit further and took the implausible title King of Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to this excerpt from my new book, Bullies and Saints. Click over to Amazon.com where you can pick up a copy of the full audiobook or a print copy if you like the feel of paper in your hand, like I do. And if you've enjoyed the content, let me encourage you to go to the Undeceptions website where you'll find much more like it, including my Undeceptions podcast. That's Undeceptions.com. See ya. Exceptions Podcast.